New Zealand Tech Podcast, the voice of the tech community. Proudly supported by Umbrella Connect. Greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. We're here at episode 511. I'm your host, Paul Spain, and very pleased to be joined today by Dennis O'Shea, who is the uh, founder and chief executive at Mobile Mentor. Welcome along, Dennis. How are you? Thank you, Paul. I'm very well, thank you. I'm what a privilege to be on your podcast. Thank you very much for having me here today. Oh, the privilege is all mine. And look, thank you very much for taking the time. I know that... Uh, you're you're coming from a, a, a slightly uh, different location than our studio today, so uh, you dialed in from is it Nashville, Tennessee? Exactly, Nashville, Tennessee. Yep. Fantastic. Yeah. And uh, yeah, for those listening in, I can I'm spotting a, a guitar uh, over your shoulder there in the background on the uh, uh, the the live video, and you meant you mentioned earlier that uh, um, you've been getting into the uh, the Nashville spirit and. Uh, and learning to play the thing. Absolutely. When in Rome, you've got to, I figure I might as well give it a go while I'm here and get some good lessons and, you know, take, take, take it to a new level. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, yeah. And now, maybe just a short intro on uh, where you fit into this big wide world of uh, technology. I know, you know a lot of listeners will, uh, you know, know something about Mobile Mentor being a, a New Zealand founded company. Uh, but what's your role and what are you doing in the United States? Well, that's exactly my role is to try and set up our business here in the United States. So I was a uh, founder of the company 16 years ago in New Zealand and spent many years building out the company in New Zealand and Australia. And, and eventually we got it to a point where we thought we should really have a crack at the U.S. market. And, um, and I'm personally very passionate about healthcare and education. And so I decided to come over here and really focus on those two industries and see if we could make a go of it. So the, the role I'm playing really is figuring out um, where the business needs to be to service those two markets in particular, and then position us um, effectively, and then lead the sales and marketing efforts in the US uh, for the company, and then feeding back into Australia and New Zealand, our learnings from here and all the, all the good benefits we get from being in the US market. That's fantastic. Well, I'm I'm very passionate about seeing New Zealand companies take on the world and uh, you know go out and uh, and and build something that can uh, generate revenue around the world. So you know, very very exciting. Well, let's jump into the news of the week. Uh, but before we do, a big thank you to the brands that stand behind the New Zealand Tech Podcast and make this show possible. So a big thank you to Sumo Logic, Vodafone, Spark, Vocus, HP, Samsung. Gorilla Technology, and Umbrella Connect. Now, um, I should just mention, just for, for clarity's sake, uh, that we really appreciate our uh, our show partners. Uh, we appreciate them making this show possible and, and their ongoing support of uh, the tech and, and innovation communities here in New Zealand. Um, but they do not have any editorial control over the show. So um, I will continue, as I, as I have done for the past decade, to uh, speak my mind, whether it's about one of those brands or not. So, uh, um, yes, well, let, let's jump in. Uh, look, a couple of news bites I wanted to uh, wanted to mention first. Uh, I've seen news that uh, U.S. Army are trialling augmented reality goggles for dogs. Uh, this was certainly something of uh, news to me that the the U.S. Army has uh, has gone down this track for uh, what they refer to as combat dogs. 
uh, and it's designed to let them receive orders, I guess, from their uh, their handler um, at something of a distance. Um, but also there is there is a bit of a balance in terms of how uh, how far and how uh, you know dangerous uh, an area that they let the dogs into. So quite pleased to hear that. Uh, other another uh, news: Google has renamed G Suite to Google Workspace. However, at the same time, um, they're adjusting their prices and plans. And looking online, I noticed that that seems to have uh, sparked uh, a level of concern from uh, from some of their customer base. Uh, they last increased their prices mid 2019, so uh, they do seem to be raising their uh, raising their prices at at in a possibly uh, a pace that uh, customers aren't expecting. So it will be interesting to see because their, uh, their I guess, closest uh, competitor uh, would be Microsoft with their 365 offering. And if the competition put their prices up, that might give Microsoft a little bit of an excuse. So uh, no doubt we will be watching to see how that plays out. Um, now in, into uh, other other topics... Uh, IBM is planning to spin off their infrastructure services so they can uh, really double down on their, their cloud services, uh, artificial intelligence and and so on. Um, this will, will be quite a big change for IBM but of course if we look back over, uh, over time there's been lots of changes, Dennis, hasn't there? In, in IBM's history, when we when we look back, you know, they spun out their PC division, they spun out their uh, their, their Intel server uh, business, and now this sort of seems to be uh, the next uh, phase of that. Well, I guess in those cases, they sold them off. They sold them to uh, Lenovo. Um, yeah. But yeah, this 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 will be a you know a separate uh, business. I think they're saying it's about a nineteen. Uh, it would be a bit do about nineteen billion dollars in terms of uh, yeah. annual uh, revenues. So quite a quite an interesting uh, you know change for IBM and and you know fairly fairly big one in the scheme of things. It is, and I mean IBM's a remarkably resilient company. If you think about where they came from and how they've morphed and changed over the years, and as you said, they've divested and invested in many different businesses. This is a huge play, and I suspect it's largely because they're seeing they're seeing they're falling behind in some of the cloud service businesses. Um, Microsoft have just done so well in recent years under Satya Nadella, the way they've powered into cloud services. So I suspect IBM are really feeling the pressure in the large enterprise and government market. So, you know, shedding the legacy infrastructure business to free up resources and people to go after the cloud business, it probably makes good sense. But on the other hand, there's probably terrific legacy or sunset business um, for the person to buy, for the company to buy that that infrastructure business. There's many, many good years left in that. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. Yeah, and I, you know, look, looking at the numbers, that uh, that accounts for about one third of their their business, from from what I can uh, see, or actually maybe a quarter of their business. So the remaining business uh, generates close to sixty billion uh, US in terms of uh, in terms of uh, revenue. So. Yeah, this will this will be fascinating. They haven't given a new uh, a new name to this business yet, or uh, filled in all of the details. But it uh, it's very much, I guess, part of um, part of IBM uh, or Big Blue, as we we've often uh, referred to them 
in in years gone by, uh, for them to you know continue transitioning and changing, and and keeping a focus. So yeah, we'll look forward to uh, just to see how that uh, how that plays out and what the impact is here uh, in the New Zealand market. What I think will be really interesting as well, Paul, is if you think back to how micro, how um, IBM got an early start in the AI market with Watson. Yes. And yes. there's so much attention and so much uh, mind share with Watson when it came out first. They, in relative terms, they seem to have gone quiet in recent years and their play in AI has not been as strong as others, perhaps. So I, I, I suspect what they're trying to do here is get back into AI, which is so important to their future. Um and get more resources into that space. We yeah, that. yeah, it certainly makes sense to to keep that uh, keep that focus for them. Um, yeah, a very different approach to others. I mean, for instance, you know, Microsoft seem to just you know they acquire things and they add things that they 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 don't often uh, you know divest of something unless they kill it off entirely. Um, Google, I guess, a, a little bit different. We have we have seen, um, and and maybe maybe it's just these things don't make the news, and you know haven't necessarily noticed them. But um, yeah, I can't I can't think of too many scenarios where Microsoft's actually sold something off. Uh, you know, Google uh, have with Boston Dynamics. That was uh, one of their acquisitions, wasn't it? And uh, they sold that off to uh, SoftBank, I think, in 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 Japan. Um, so yeah, the, some, sometimes uh, there there is a bit of uh, you know change, but they're much much younger companies than uh, than IBM. So uh, yeah, true, um, true. yeah, they're they're they're, uh, they're they're youngsters in the uh, in the scheme of it in comparison. So, yeah. Um, now Microsoft have, have um, hit the news around. Their approach to this, um, you know, concept of the hybrid uh, workplace, and they're indicating that they're going to be letting uh, more of their staff uh, work from home permanently. Uh, so, you know, a, a change there that uh, you know, no doubt, has come about in part because of what we've seen and what we've learnt uh, from COVID. Uh, in terms of hiring people now, there's uh, changed expectations, and in terms of uh, just delivering, uh, you know, satisfaction to staff generally, uh, you know, part of that uh, that puzzle is what does the work from home uh, picture look like? And uh, I'm certainly, you know, I know of uh, you know folks within uh, within Microsoft who. Uh, you know, have have worked away from you know HQ and have worked in varying sort of locations. Uh, you know, for quite some time. That's that's certainly been part of their mix. Um, do you think this will will help set set a, you know more more trends in the industry? Because we've certainly seen uh, you know announcements and and news from uh, Google and 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 others as well in terms of remote working. And being US headquartered, uh, of course, the story is somewhat different uh, for such companies than it is for uh, New Zealand companies, right? Yeah, look, I think I think Microsoft was on this journey for a long time before COVID. So a lot of the people I personally know inside Microsoft r- rarely ever go into an office. They're working remotely. And what was interesting to me was they rolled out a new office design concept about three, four years ago. 
And the first office in the world to get the full makeover with this new design concept was the Nashville office. And I've been in there a number of times and it's stunning. It's absolutely stunning. You've got these meeting rooms that have um, treadmills and big screens. So you can do your team's calls and while you're doing a workout in the treadmill and fabulous facilities everywhere. But the amazing thing about the office is that it's always empty. So in spite of being in a prime location, yep. uh, beautiful setup, free parking, cafes and food trucks all around it, there's nobody there. There might be one or two staff and, and one lady at reception. And they go in for events or when they have a customer briefing, some kind of an executive briefing or technology briefing. Other than that, most people work from home or they used to be on planes traveling to see customers. And now they're just at home. And so I think those offices um, were just grossly underutilized. So I feel like this trend to remote working was happening long before COVID. It obviously got accelerated. And um, and any any organization that's fully cloud-enabled is already, I think, fully committed to home working. We are as an organization, we're, we're very small compared to Microsoft, but we've you know fully adopted paperless, passwordless, modern working so that we can be anywhere, anytime. And I just think that's the future of people and technology. Yeah, I I agree. Although there's there's something that you miss from uh, not you know having any face to face time, so, uh, but you know COVID has sort of forced it to the ex- the extent that we haven't had uh, any sort of choice choices there for you know varying windows of time. Uh, but how how have you found it across uh, across Mobile Mentor? Because you're uh, you're in how many countries? Is it three countries at the moment. Three countries, yeah. And so you've had a distributed workforce for you know for for a period of time. You've had that uh, that mix between uh, staff that are based in a in a physical office and those working working from home. What would be the the obvious you know learnings and upsides and, and downsides uh, from a from a perspective at Mobile Mentor? I think the biggest learning, the biggest upside for us was the fact that we can all work remotely on projects and assemble teams with people in Australia, New Zealand, the States to work on a team. And that's perfectly acceptable to a client in a way that perhaps it was not a year ago. So we just said to the client, there'll be no travel, so no travel costs, and you'll have many different accents on these calls, um, but it's going to be a blended team and we'll just put the best team on the job. And that is a perfectly normal concept today. It would have been maybe a bit weird uh, a year ago. So that's been a real positive. A downside has been the fact that we just, we missed the human contact. You know, we're a service company. We're all about people and service. And we, we miss physically getting together. Um, we were very fortunate in that we celebrated 15 years as a company last November. And we brought everybody together from the States, Australia, New Zealand, to Auckland for two days. And we did a cooking competition for Ronald McDonald House. And we rented the America's Cup boats and we went out sailing and had a big night out in the town. And the fact that we got to do that and travel just before COVID was um, a blessing, a real blessing, something we, we appreciate now. Um, the other downside of COVID is hiring new employees and, and trying to onboard them and make them part of your culture and trying to do that remotely with people you've never met in the flesh. That's hard. And we've got a lot to learn, a lot to figure out about how to get that right and how to draw people in and make them feel like they're part of the family, part of the business. Um, that's much harder when we're all remote. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, it definitely cha- changes uh, the the way that we have to do some things, but 
that's the reality now, and uh, there's probably some some benefits that we'll get in the longer term uh, yeah. from figuring out how to uh, how to do these things and how to how to do them, uh, you know, reason reasonably well like that. Yeah, and look, I keep reminding my team we're as an organisation uh, we're on the lucky side of the ledger. You know, we've got many businesses and industries around us that are suffering enormously from COVID. Working in technology, we're so lucky that we can do, you know, 99.9% of our work at sitting at home and, um, and, and, and it's very comfortable and we're very productive. We're probably more productive than we used to be um, traveling to the office every day. So we're on the lucky side of the ledger working in technology. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, on to um, another matter. It was interesting to read that uh, a white hacker group has spent some time uh, focusing on Apple, and they've found uh, dozens of bugs, including uh, eleven that were uh, were critical in nature. And yeah, this this was something I came across uh, online in um, in a couple a couple of places. There was a, a, a news story about it, um, but the the security guru, I will call him, um, behind it, uh, Sam Curry has uh, the story up on his uh, his blog at samcurry.net about hacking Apple, uh, and he said uh, he got together a team. Uh, he had he had basically come across uh, Apple uh, making some uh, some some payouts uh, to security researchers. I think he saw you know somebody get awarded. Uh, $100,000 uh, US for uh, discovering a particular issue and uh, so yeah he, he decided to uh, to invite uh, some other security researchers and they spent uh, they spent three months from uh, 6th of July through to uh, 6th of October and uh, went through and found a whole range of uh, a whole range of uh, vulnerabilities in uh, in varying aspects of uh, of Apple's uh, software. Um, now this fascinates me from you know from a couple of perspectives. One that cybersecurity researchers can go out, and I think between the uh, between the five of them, uh, he had suggested that they probably over that three months will have generated five hundred thousand uh, dollars US once they get uh, once they get credit and uh, payment for everything. I think the uh, the figure that was initially uh, shared was two hundred eighty eight thousand uh, dollars US. Um, but there, that there was a mention of an indication of that uh, potentially uh, reaching about five hundred thousand dollars US. So you know, for those that are out there uh, and wondering what field to get into, then uh, look, uh, you know, cybersecurity can certainly uh, uh, you know, generate some some pretty good uh, pretty good returns if you're getting those sort of payouts. Um, the other side is, of course, if if that can happen and um, if I if I got my details right, this uh, this chap is uh, was is fairly young. Uh, Sam Curry, I think he read I read that he's uh, he's twenty years old. Um, so age is not necessarily a barrier uh, if you you know if you're very very smart and uh, and you you know you learn your trade and this stuff. Um, it's uh, you know can can be incredibly lucrative. Um, the flip side, of course, and this is not something specific uh, to just Apple, I'm sure, is that if you know if a group of uh, hackers 
decide to spend a bit of time, you know, focusing on any platform, uh, then they can be incredibly successful with finding uh, issues and vulnerabilities. And uh, certainly, that's what we've what we've seen in this case. Now, their their uh, reason to focus on Apple was because. Apple have put the incentives in place in terms of uh, good payouts for for this type of work, and so it yeah. highlights the importance for um, organisations, you know, especially uh, the big players in the industry, um, to offer big incentives and big payouts to uh, security researchers, uh, because if those those numbers are are nice and high. Uh, then you've certainly got more chance it's going to be found by the good guys rather than rather than the bad guys. Uh, but the unfortunate reality is, of course, uh, if if bad guys had uh, had done the same thing or, or chose to, or choose to do the same thing, uh, which, which we know that uh, is certainly going on on a constant basis, um, then of course they they would have likely found uh, you know possibly a similar number of of vulnerabilities. And uh, and you know possibly generated that much or or more through um, uh, l- l- you know less uh, positive uh, mechanisms, shall we yeah. say? That's the question on my mind: is if those guys had applied their skills to say downloading malware kits and launching ransomware attacks by um, you know exploiting those vulnerabilities or doing other sorts of bad stuff. How much money would they have made compared to what they made through um, the way they did go about it? Hopefully, the number would have been smaller. <laughs> I'd like to think that, but it, it, it's refreshing to see that ethical hacking and doing it the right way for the right incentives can actually be a lucrative activity. And hopefully, you know, word gets out and we get more and more hackers applying their skills in good ways rather than bad ways. Yeah, absolutely. I you know I think um, you know very very pleasing to hear, but you know the reality is there there, there will be people uh, who are not quite so uh, you know uh, ethical in terms of their approach, and that yeah. that that will continue whether it's uh, you know things that are uh, state sponsored, uh, and you know we we hear about um, you know certainly in in some locations, and you know, I was re- reading a news story. Uh, about North Korea in the last uh, you know 24 hours, and you know it seems like they have you know tremendous you know challenges there uh, you know from a poverty perspective and and so on. And so you know when when you get those sorts of uh, pressures, you can totally understand uh, why, as a state there, they might uh, they might be doing some of these. Uh, uh, things from a hacking perspective to uh, to generate uh, revenue to um, you know actually feed their people. It's probably quite a different story than than it is in a lot of other cases. Uh, not yeah. saying that I actually support that, but I'm just saying I can understand it. Yeah, measures. Yeah, So you know the the but the flow on from from these things is um, yeah pretty shocking. So. You know, just yeah. just a reminder. I you know, I guess again, as 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 I often do, to uh, you know, keep keep your 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 organisation focused. Uh, you know, if you're aware of how to avoid, um, you know, cyber uh, issues, then um, you know, be educating those you work with and and family members how to avoid these things. 
Um, I, I saw uh, yesterday forwarded through some information uh, on a number of uh, number of Kiwis who had their LinkedIn accounts uh, compromised, and they were they were um, you know targeting off uh, you know phishing attacks at uh, at other people, and of course this this sort of thing um, is is not. Uh, not not good and not helpful. So um, you know, f- fortunately, we're 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 slowly getting more educated on these things. But uh, you know, with these uh, vulnerabilities always existing, uh, you know, it'll never be possible to entirely uh, close the door to uh, cybersecurity issues. Yeah, Paul, there's one you'll enjoy. We got a a web form a web form completed through our website last month. Somebody saying, "Can you please reset my password?" That was it. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> the level of maturity that's out there in, in some sectors of society. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, there, there, there really is so much to, uh, you know, so much to learn from a cybersecurity uh, pers- perspective. And you know, look, it's a, it's a, it's an ongoing, uh, an ongoing exercise. And uh, you know, sometimes people who you, who you would uh, think would, um, you know. Be the last to do uh, silly things from a security perspective. Um, you know, sometimes they fall foul to these uh, these things. Um, now, I also um, found something quite interesting. A new browser uh, for the Chinese market has been uh, launched that basically bypasses um, China's. A great firewall and provides access to uh, banned services such as YouTube, uh, Twitter, Facebook, uh, and uh, and Instagram. Now, this is rather curious. You have to actually uh, you have to confirm your uh, your account um, via a Chinese mobile number uh, in order for. Um, for it to to operate, um, and which has sort of got me, you know, scratching my head um, a little bit. So that's part of the registration uh, process, and it says it's tied to a person's um, real identity. And there are notes that the platform could suspend users' accounts and share their data with relevant authorities. If they actively watch or share content that breaches the constitution, endangers national security and sovereignty, and a, you know a list of uh, a list of other um, things, so I've, I'm really struggling to get my head around um, exactly where you know where where does this fit? Is this uh, something that in some way the state uh, are involved in, so they can uh, they can try and uh, you know, catch those who are maybe using these platforms via uh, VPNs and uh, and things today with the uh, the the process of uh, you know verifying through a uh, a mobile number. Um, just the dots don't seem to sort of add up particularly uh, well for me. It seems like a very uh, strange scenario since by using those apps of YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, etc., um, you know, I think you're probably break, breaking some uh, some rules or, or, or laws in China as it is. <laughs> what do you what do you think about uh, this one? Is it a way of providing uh, a censored peephole from China into the Western world, so giving people an alternative to say an anonymous VPN? where they could go off and do what they like and the Chinese authorities have no visibility. 
is this a way of saying you're allowed to have some visibility of um, and, and some access to Western apps, but we're going to anchor that in your mobile using your mobile number and have some visibility about what you're doing and maybe if you behave well, we'll give you increased privileges over time, or if you don't behave well, we'll will choke off your access. Right, yeah, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Because, yeah, it said that the uh, YouTube through this um, through this this browser um, queries for politically sensitive, um, you know, keywords, people searching mm-hmm. for Tiananmen Square and uh, and 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 other things weren't uh, weren't actually getting any uh, results. So, so yeah, the, it's well, it's fascinating. So what about if you're lost in downtown Beijing and you need to get to Tiananmen Square and you want to type that into the, the into the navigator mm-hmm. your, your navigator or whatever? Yeah, yeah, you might be uh, might might be out of out of luck. Um, yeah, I yeah. did I did find that Google Maps didn't seem to be um, necessarily perfectly accurate uh, in in China last time I was there. So um, yeah, I guess maybe you need to use a um, a, a, a Chinese app. So yeah, I, this this would be an interesting one to to follow. The app is called um, uh, Chuba. So uh, yeah, fascinating. So maybe. Maybe a way of thinking about it, Paul, is it maybe some form of parental control that's being applied to your your, your browsing and your your social media experience? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I uh, I would want that, but uh, such are the freedoms of uh, of yeah. of living in uh, in a democratic uh, country. Now, yeah. onto uh, onto some New Zealand uh, things, so. A company who we've we've talked about here on New Zealand Tech Podcast in the past, uh, they started out as my Bitcoin saver about six years ago, back in 2014. Uh, they rebranded to Vimba as they moved outside of the New Zealand market. Uh, but basically, I think they were probably the the first or, or one of the first companies in New Zealand that would allow you uh, to take a New Zealand dollar deposit it into their account and they would convert it into Bitcoin uh, for you. And part of the way that they got through this with the banks uh, was by working with smaller transaction sizes. So rather than a, and a big purchase of, of Bitcoin that, you know, often people might want to buy thousands of dollars worth of Bitcoin at, at one time or, or more, um, they worked on this idea of that uh, you were basically drip drip feeding and and uh, you know maybe putting uh, $50 of bitcoin into your account on a uh, on a weekly basis um, and and look it was uh, it was a reasonably smart move and and those who got in you know right at the beginning in 2014 uh, you know if you have a look back over uh, mm-hmm. over bitcoin prices you you probably would have done uh, you know d- done o- done okay um, but they expanded out internationally, and uh, UK was it was a huge focus for them, um, and the European Union. But um, they've announced they're shutting down. I believe it's uh, in the, just this week that they're shutting down. Um, they indicate the reason for this is that we were unable to raise the capital that we need to continue our mission to build Bitcoin financial services. So it doesn't give away too much. They were, you know, working on you know what sounded like some pretty interesting and uh, and innovative offerings. And you know, my understanding was they had quite a reasonable uh, customer base, and of course they'd be clipping the ticket on all of those transactions along the way. And I guess there's a degree to which uh, you know new 
uh, investment services have come in, into the market, uh, especially here in New Zealand this year. But I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't have uh, thought that they would have had a huge, uh, huge drop off. Um, so yeah, very, very um, uh, interesting to see that come to an end. And I, you know, I think in some ways it's it, it's sad. Um, but you know, we'll, we'll I guess we'll have to wait and see what um, uh, what the team come up with and, and what they move on to next. And uh, you know, maybe they've got some interesting opportunities on the table. Yeah, well, that, that's often how it happens. The first venture, you know, generates a whole bunch of scars and experience, and then the second venture can be a huge success. Yeah. So yeah. best of luck to the team. Yep. So um, yeah, we'll uh, we'll look forward to uh, hear, hearing about uh, about that. I I think we've had. Um, uh, yeah, it's Sam Blackmore is the the CEO and founder, and he's certainly been here uh, in in the studio in the past. Um, so we'll we'll look forward to hearing a little bit more on that. Um, the the other thing from uh, from a local perspective is that uh, New Zealand government have have come out and issued an, an official statement uh, in regards to uh, challenges with end to end encryption from their perspective uh, versus. Uh, I guess you would say you know, public public safety, and and this is something where New Zealand government, of course, is is uh, part of the Five Eyes network, and uh, and you know very much have that alignment. So this uh, statement that's come out uh, has Andrew Little's uh, name on it, and uh, yeah, basically highlighting that um, that. The the role of encryption is something that uh, you know generally that they uh, support, um, but they're saying that they they don't support the um, uh, you know challenges of certain content not being able to be uh, accessed by authorities because that uh, those communications, for instance, are encrypted, and so they they you know mention things such as. Um, sexually exploited children, and so you know we know that these channels get used in a in a way to um, you know pass uh, you know pass around uh, things that we we wouldn't really like to see uh, happening. And of course, um, you know something I I I guess uh, you know many of us are familiar with is that in in years gone by, and and even to this day, and I guess this is part of. Part of your world, uh, Dennis. Uh, certainly, in, in years gone by, and I used to work for uh, Nokia. Um, is that authorities have had that access to be able to, uh, you know, listen in on phone calls and uh, you know look at uh, at text messages if there was a search warrant in place. Uh, of course, when you've got full end-to-end encryption, uh, that sort of thing uh, stops. But it's also a can of worms if you uh, if you open this up and say that authorities can get in and uh, and and start uh, start looking at it. It's an extremely difficult issue, extremely difficult. And what's been interesting in recent years is watching the way Tim Cook has threaded the needle on this, where Apple has been, uh, you know, a huge, come under huge pressure. Yes. To um, to to disclose um, some customers' data. And the way they've tried to navigate this has been very interesting to watch them. And it'll be exactly the same for governments. And of course, the challenge is if you open the back door, how do you prevent that back door being exploited at some point? And the irony of this whole conversation is that the five eyes are asking for this. But then you think about all the um, all the heat about Huawei in the Western countries 
it's exactly because there are fears, there are backdoors being exploited by the Chinese government and there are intercepts and eavesdropping mechanisms in place. So ironic that, you know, those countries want Huawei out of the way uh, to remove that risk. And yet the same countries are asking for backdoors to other technologies um, to give them privileged access to, to some information. So it's a very tricky issue. I don't have a dog in the fight. Um, but I can just appreciate how difficult this must be for politicians and people making these decisions. I don't envy them. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I I don't think anyone's got any easy answers on it uh, at you know at all. And yeah, I'm not I'm not quite sure where it will land. I mean, we've certainly gone in that direction of of end to end encryption, and if that's yeah. done properly, yes, it means that uh, you know there's a lot of information that in the past uh, authorities could could get access to to uh, solve and to stop crimes happening and in many cases that is now off the table uh, interesting we had a, a story some months ago of a i think it was a french or certainly a european based uh, uh, entity that was selling these encrypted uh, phones with you know, that would would do encrypted calls from end to end and encrypted yeah. messaging and basically they were they were very very big within the the criminal underworld and uh, that this the whole system managed to get compromised, and so the authorities uh, were able to listen in on, uh, you know, on these yeah. communications and 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 solve a whole raft of crimes because you know so so many criminals uh, were trusting this technology, which uh, uh, actually they, they they shouldn't have been, and yeah, uh, yeah they, that's uh, that's one of the aspects of uh, you know of encryption is look if it's if it's not actually set up. How you might uh, think it should be, then, uh, then yeah, that's not going to work out too well. And that was one of the turning points in the Second World War when the British cracked the Enigma code. The Germans didn't know they did, but they were able to listen in and understand what was happening with the U-boat attacks. Um, but when you think about where where does encryption stop? I mean, the device you've got in your hands there, Paul, is it has got a TPM chip. It's an encrypted device. And so most of the technology we're using and buying nowadays is encrypted. Most of the social media tools we use are encrypted. Most of the communication challenges we use are encrypted. If you start cracking this open and insisting on backdoors to some encryption, where do you stop? Yeah, yeah, it's, no, it's uh, yeah, really, really hard to op- open open that up. Uh, certainly, yeah. there's going to be unintended consequences if that uh, if that happens. So, uh, yeah. Um, it would be a podcast all in its, all by itself. Yes, yeah, absolutely, absolutely uh, could could be. Now, I was hoping we would have a little bit of time to delve in and, and talk about this new gadget I received recently um, via FedEx from the US, and uh, it's something called the Microsoft Surface Duo. Now, in the early days of the show, we used to talk about some uh, devices from Microsoft, uh, something called Windows Phone. Um, the Surface Duo is, I mean, it just sort of fascinated me in terms of what are Microsoft doing, launching, you know, launching back into phones after such incredible failure in years gone by. Um, and they've tried, you know, they've they've done acquisitions of multiple companies uh, in phones, and none of that's worked for them. Uh, and yet they're having another go with the Surface Duo. Um, it's been 
I would say, slated a, a fair degree in reviews so far. Um, we're just not going to have time to really uh, delve into it today because I want to hear, uh, Dennis, from you a little bit about Mobile uh, Mentor. Um, so we're going to save that up for, for a future episode. Um, so, yeah, if, if anyone has any particular questions about it, if you're, uh, you're curious, I'm, I've not come across anybody else in New Zealand that has one of these yet. Uh, I'm sure there probably are one or two others that have, uh, um, you know, done what we do here on the New Zealand Tech Podcast and, uh, you know, have gone, gone out and uh, acquired one. But that's, you know, part of the history of, of this show when there's something that, you know, we think is really interesting uh, in terms of a technology, it, but hasn't been launched in the New Zealand market, uh, then we tend to try and uh, try and get our hands on it and uh, and share some of that, as we've done with products from from Apple and uh, and uh, Microsoft and uh, Amazon and others in the, in the past uh, ahead of them, maybe launching in the New Zealand market or maybe not. So we'll come back to that one, um, Dennis. I'm keen to hear a little bit about the uh, the mobile mentor uh, story, and uh, you know. Where where have you come from, and uh, you know where, where's the business now? Because yeah, it's it's fascinating, uh, you know, hearing these sort of startup type stories, and uh, you know, I think it's it's always encouraging to uh, uh, to hear what New Zealand companies can uh, can do as they you know spread their wings beyond uh, beyond New Zealand. So. Um, Maybe tell sure. us, um, you know, what, what what did the business start out doing and what is it that Mobile Mentor does today? Sure. Well, we're still a startup. We're 16, a 16-year-old startup is how one of our advisory board members describes us. So we started out providing a service we called mentoring. So that device you just had in your hand, that Surface Duo device, was a good example. It's a new piece of technology in the market. And when we started, people were buying Nokia smartphones and then BlackBerry smartphones. And setting them up was actually very complex back then. So 16 years ago, you needed to know a special email address. You needed a special server address. You needed a special cable to sync your phone with your laptop. And it was all very messy. So we provided a one-hour service to somebody like yourself to sync it, get everything working, get your email working, get all your contacts working. And we provided that service um, extensively across New Zealand in partnership with Vodafone. And then we spread into, we got into Brazil and then Australia and China. And we eventually provided that service, that one-to-one mentoring service to a million people wow. to help them get their smartphone working well, make them productive, and just get them going on this mobile journey. And of course, mobile devices got bigger and the, the laptop you've got in your hand right now is a mobile device. So the devices we're serving nowadays are mainly laptops, but also tablets and also smartphones. And we've, you know, we're not doing that mentoring anymore. That stopped around 2008, I want to say, or 2009. But we got into security for those devices and then helping people find the right balance between security and productivity. Because as you can imagine, if you allow the geeks to apply all the security they possibly could to your device, it's going to be virtually unusable. You know, just because you could have 450 policies applied to, to a device doesn't mean you should. So it's all about getting the right balance. Between it's always a balance, isn't it, with, with, with security? Yeah. Absolutely. And not just the device, but the data, your identity, um, your access, and then having a good experience and trying to hide the security intelligently. So a lot of the work we're doing now is working in healthcare, education, government, and making sure that security is in place, but it's well it's, it's well designed, well implemented. So the user experience is also really fluid and smooth and people can be productive. 
And now that we're all working remotely, this experience and balancing security and, and user experience is more important than ever before. Yeah, fantastic. Oh, that's a that's a great field uh, to be to be in, and yeah, you know, it's something we've talked about with a few people recently around that opportunity for uh, New Zealand to really, uh, you know, build up a, a strong base of uh, you know players within within that field of security, especially uh, yeah. you know, among amongst others, of you know, of course. But, uh, you know, really we, we should be building up uh, our firms and, and taking them out into the international market. So, yeah, really pleasing to see you working there in, in the U.S. Uh, in Nashville. Cool. Tell us a little bit about getting started uh, in, the, in the U.S. And, I mean, it's, an, it's such, a, such a big market. How have you gone about uh, getting getting started? What do you what do you focus on? Uh, that must yeah, be that well, must be incredibly hard. I mean, it's it would be it'd be easy, and we've seen you know I guess many other businesses that have uh, poured a lot of money into the U.S. market, and um, you know sometimes uh, you know walk away a little bit with their sort of tail between their legs, as it as it were. It's uh, you know it's not not a not an easy market. I wouldn't imagine. It's not easy, and the, and the numbers are quite overwhelming you know you get dizzy just thinking about the size of the market what we did um we were very passionate i'm very passionate about healthcare and we're strong in healthcare and that was a lot of our business in new zealand so the approach we took was pick one state which was tennessee one city nashville where the biggest hospital companies in the world are based most of the big ones are either based in nashville or have big offices in nashville right so we said well, pick one city one industry and initially just one or two companies and go after those and just focus on doing business with the biggest healthcare providers in Nashville and get established with them, learn from them and get a foothold and then spread from there. And that's been the strategy. We And, and also working with partners, we had a strategy called one plus one. So find one person who likes us, work with that person, do good work, get a referral or an introduction to one other and step and repeat, step and repeat. So just one plus one. So taking it slow, building it out organ- organically, not trying to get you know hockey stick growth, um, and just just building a reputation at a, at a modest pace. Yeah. So that's, that's been our strategy. Yeah, that's great. And um, are you happy with how it's going? I guess there's always a- ambition for uh, uh, for more, right? Yes, um, there is. Look, we've, we've got a good start in healthcare. We've also got a good start in education. We found some really fabulous clients who really needed help when COVID started, when all the faculty, staff, and students had to work remotely. They needed a lot of help setting up all their laptops and devices, so we, we got some good wins there. And just today, we got our first major win with um, um, a major U.S. government department, part of the Department of Homeland Security. So a major, major win in the government sector, and that's a first for us. So it'll take a while to, you know, work through that project and get out the other side of it because government just moves a bit slower. But um, essentially, it will take many years, many years to to build the kind of presence um, in that market because it's just so huge. But you know, I'm patient, we're patient, and one customer at a time, one step at a time, and we believe we'll we'll eventually get there. Yeah. Oh, that's that's great. Um, well, yeah. yeah, really interesting to to hear about mobile mentor Dennis. Thanks for uh, for for sharing that with us. Um, anything else that uh, that you wanted to add before we uh, finish up on the podcast today? 
Well, the one thing that struck me, I'm watching you sitting there with your Surface laptop, and one thing that's become really obvious to us in recent times is the way that companies used to manage their smartphones in the past is now the same as how you're able to manage Surface machines and, and other laptops. So if you think about the life of a smartphone in a company, the IT team never touches it. It gets purchased, it gets shipped to the user, it gets configured over the air, software gets updated over the air, it gets to end of life and it gets reset and given to somebody else. Now we can do exactly the same with laptops, which is really exciting, especially for people working remotely and not having to go into the office and configure laptops the old way we're used to and then bring them back in to get a software update and bring them back in at the end of life to rebuild them and reconfigure them. We can do all of that remotely, just like a smartphone. So we're seeing this really exciting convergence of you know, laptops, desktops, tablets, smartphones into this one end-to-end seamless experience, um, which, which makes life very interesting for us and for a lot of the IT folks we deal with. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, certainly, it's uh, it's part of that, you know, continuing uh, ev- evolvement of uh, of you know technology and technology management. And uh, yeah, yeah, there there are a whole you know raft of of new mechanisms, and I'm sure that will continue. That allows you know certain things to be automated, certain things to be uh, um, you know managed remotely and yeah as you as you say um you know totally possible to do uh, a, pr- a pretty broad range of things now without uh, you know physically uh, touching touching a device and uh, yeah. yeah it's uh, it's pretty cool and it couldn't come in a better time you know everyone's looking to, for ways to save money right now and get a bit more automation and do more work remotely and give their employees a great experience working remotely so timing's good for yeah. some of these innovations to take hold yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Dennis, for joining the show. And a huge thank you again to our show partners for supporting the New Zealand Tech Podcast. Now, Dennis, if, uh, if anyone is, uh, is wanting to get, get in touch, what's the best way to, uh, uh, to reach out? Probably LinkedIn, Dennis O'Shea. I'm LinkedIn, Dennis with one end. Uh, that's probably the easiest way to reach me or dennis at mobile-mentor.com. Okay, that's great. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, you know, you can of course uh, track down our videos. So I know that the very large majority of our audience uh, listens in, uh, you know, via the audio podcast. But if you'd like to catch our videos, uh, then you can look up those on uh, YouTube, Facebook, and LinkedIn, uh, and possibly probably Twitter and, and Periscope as well. And you're certainly welcome to follow us on those social channels and to get in touch uh, if you've got any any questions or suggestions for topics or guests uh, for the New Zealand Tech Podcast. Uh, and you can reach me directly if you'd like to get hold of me on email, uh, paul.spain at gorillahq.com. All right, thanks, everyone. We'll catch you again on the next episode. And uh, thank you, Dennis, for joining the show. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. New Zealand Tech Podcast, the voice of the tech community. Proudly supported by Umbrella Connect.